So during these holiday specials, we are also talking about the most interesting things we've eaten all year. This episode, it's your turn, Justin. What have you got? So, you know, clearly we're all eating more comfort food. I'm looking forward to the debates about this, like once the pandemic ends and more people go to this place. But I still think like Horn Barbecue might have been the best barbecue I've had from a restaurant uh, maybe ever. I'm not like, you know, I've eaten at a lot of barbecue places, but that stuff was on point. And I've been kind of like a fiend for barbecue since then. Like, you know, <laughs> each time I eat it, I'm always like, I can't immediately go back. Like, let me see if I can go somewhere else. And so, so like, I messed around and went to, uh, I went to Famous Dave's and That's got so... barbecue from there. <laughs> That's a mistake. Oh, my God. No no one warned me. Look, man, I didn't know. I had never been there. I had never tried the place before. It was dry. It was like it was like chain restaurant barbecue, like every stereotype mm. of chain restaurant barbecue you can have. And that's on me. That's my mistake. There are plenty of great barbecue places to go. But uh, isn't the logo or like the mascot like a pig playing the saxophone or something? Exactly. And that, that's how you know. And that's how you <laughs> That should be the warning sign of don't go in there. <laughs> I mean, unless you see something like that and it's like really shoddy looking and it's like somewhere down south below the Mason-Dixon line, then you could probably be like, oh, okay, that barbecue might not be that bad. That's like a weird logo. Might be okay. Anywhere else? Uh, I don't know, man. Just, yeah, horror barbecue is pretty good. Uh, let's Let's just live on that thought, how good that place is. And with that said, hello, people. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Salejo. In today's episode, you'll hear our interview with Kevin Vaughn, a writer and general, like, really interesting dude who lives in Buenos Aires, Argentina. He talks to us about travel writing and how, you know, there's a lot of problems with it. It's very colonial, very imperialist, all those fun things. And we talk a lot of smack. Before we get to this week's episode, we'd love to hear from you, the listener. If you've been enjoying what Soleil and I have been doing, what we've been making, what you've been hearing, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Of course, we love positive reviews. You know, that would be great. But we'll take them all. You can write in any comments or suggestions on what you'd like to hear in season two or whatever else you want. Whatever. If you notice extra good, like really, really, really good, We'll share it in a segment during season two. Probably. We will. We will. Okay. Let's get back to the interview. I'm Kevin Vaughn, and I am a cook, a food writer, and the owner of a food tour business. I kind of like look at my work as really interdisciplinary. I, I am a writer, um, but I'm also a cook, and I run a food-oriented travel company, um, my like background in terms of study was uh, I was in a major at UC Santa Barbara called Global Studies, which is um, really heavy on like political science and economics, but a really strong um, backbone in anthropology. And so, kind of like the, what I what I learned to study in college was this intersection of a bunch of different systems and how things interact with one another, and like really trying to not look at anything in a binary and um, really see that, that nothing exists in, in a vacuum. And so, and, and the way that I've translated that into 
writing in addition to sort of like my cooking informs the way that I write as a writer because I kind of have that that inside language and that in when I'm speaking with people and my writing tends to inform the way I give tours because I've studied a lot of history and I know a lot about politics and, and economics here with like writing, you know, as I like got more and more into writing about Buenos Aires and really trying to develop an expertise around this city, this city specifically, but Argentina more broadly and how Argentina fits into um, South America. I was just like, you know, obviously reading a lot about what was, what was written about Argentina and Buenos Aires within the country by writers from here and what was being written about from outside of the country. And just like the reality that I lived and the reality that I saw around me and the experience that my friends had that, you know, pretty diverse set of friends from all over Latin America and from Argentina, different backgrounds. It like never matched up, like even close with what I saw that was being written and, and, and what's written, it's always the same exact story over and over and over again. And so for me, the, the sort of like impetus behind the way I've shifted my writing over the last like two years or so, and especially with Matambre, is I really want to run against the, the current of that like dominant narrative and recognize where that dominant narrative comes from, recognize like the sort of positions of power and the positions of privilege that allow those narratives to exist in, in the consciousness, even though they don't really exist on the ground. And kind of like use my space as, you know, like my position of privilege of being like a um, guy from the United States, white, cisgendered, very upper class in Argentina, and like questioning that privilege and kind of like trying to do my best to redistribute like the cultural and social capital of storytelling in a way that like kind of, you know, looks more like what I see on the ground and kind of pushes the story further and further away from, you know, this like Eurocentric fantasy that that's perpetuated. I would love to hear from you just what the outside story of Argentina is and what the inside story is, if that makes sense. Like, what are these narratives yeah. that are clashing? To give like a little bit of like, like a brief history lesson of Argentina, right? I mean, Argentina, like the rest of Central and South America, is a country that is the, the product of colonization. So most of the continent was colonized by the Spanish. Um, and that is the case here. The last 500 years of Argentina is like the development of, as a nation. The dominant class was uh, generally European. Uh, most of the native culture in Argentina throughout various sort of like military uh, initiatives were, were pretty much wiped out. The dominant class has always um, sort of concentrated power in agriculture. It's most of the economy historically is agro-export. And so there's always been this like really extreme control over food access and, um, and, and, and the wealth that that food creates historically in the country. So in, around like kind of like the industrial age around the world, Argentina was the country that was feeding the rest of the world. And there were massive amounts of wealth that were created around that. And the, the dominant class sort of 
built Buenos Aires into this kind of metropolitan playground that was designed to look like Paris. And that's where that, that phrase, Paris of South America, comes from, was there's sort of a section of the city where most of the architecture is not only like, it's not just inspired by, by buildings in Paris. In some cases, it's like totally um, like mimicked. It looks exactly like a building back in, in Paris. And so there was like always this kind of rejection of um, being American. And like, I'm using that term, like recognizing all of the Americas. And this idea of white supremacy and European supremacy, and you see that in everything, but and food is not is no different. And so the the story here, there's kind of these like code, these like specific words that are used to describe Buenos Aires. You know, it's always talked about as Paris of South America. Um, a lot of times, it's described as like the most sophisticated city in the in in Latin America. Um, you know, I don't know like what the implication of that is for the rest of South America, but it's always kind of like talked about these like very Eurocentric, very kind of white supremacist ideas. And it doesn't, that doesn't align with, that's, that's a vision that kind of began to disappear more than a hundred years ago as immigration started shifting away from Europeans coming into the city beginning in the early 1900s to becoming a country that was receiving a lot of Latin American uh, immigration. And now like 80 or 90% of, of, of immigrant residents are from Latin America. But that like vestige is like of, of colonialism and this like aspiration of being white, uh, of being from North America or of being from Europe is really, really firmly rooted in the culture. And that's, you know, the, the dominant culture, the, the, the wealth is still, you know, very much sort of dominated by very white looking people. Um, the city is very segregated as well in terms of, of color and ethnicity. The further south you go, the browner people become, the more stigmatized the neighborhoods become. And so on the ground, like, you know, Buenos Aires is a city of three and a half million people, if you were to count. Uh, into that the entire like outskirts of the city it's closer to 15 million people so it's like a fourth of the population in Argentina is all concentrated in the same place and the city that I see is this city that is really diverse from you know people from Europe people from East Asia people from the Middle East people from all over Latin America in varying degrees of assimilation um, that, that really make this, this city a lot more diverse than what the kind of like dominant story is, which is like tango and beef and red wine and, and like, you know, walking down the street and you feel like you're in Paris, which that's never happened to me. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's these like two competing things. And I think that's something that I kind of pointed out in, in that Netflix article is it's not unique to Argentina. I think every Latin American country kind of has this um, this paradox, you know, in, in Chile, it's with the Mapuche people, in Brazil, and Colombia, it's with these like extreme um, segregation between black and white and native uh, residents and, and various parts of Central America, this kind of denial of indigenous culture. 
But in Argentina, it's really, really strong because kind of that dominant class is very white looking and very European looking. And, but it doesn't reflect anything like what the city looks like now. So, okay, then these sorts of travel shows mm-hmm. like Street Food, like Somebody Feed Phil, they're look, they seem to be looking for really easy narratives, really easy stories to tell about these really diverse places all around the world. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to hear more about just how, I don't know, the, it seems like the ease of the narrative is what enables a lot of these stereotypes, a lot of this sort of white supremacist ideology to seep through just because it seems really part of the ide- ideology to to homogenize difference, you know, um, yeah. to uncomplicate complicated places and people. So is there is it possible for a food travel show to be honest? I think this is like something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I've been speaking about it with a lot of other writers of kind of like this, um, this need, not just in travel media, media in general, to tell the story and to try to like encapsulate everything into a single story. And I think that that's really exasperated when you when you go to a foreign space and you're trying to tell the whole story of a country. And so how do you resume 500 years worth of history into a 30 minute show? I mean, I think the, the attempt is, it's, it's, it's doomed to fail from, from its own, you know, hypothesis. It's, you know, the proposal to do it that way. I think that we kind of as journalists or as media people need to like step away from that desire to tell the whole grand story and like allow ourselves to tell a story and let all of those stories, you know, kind of stack on top of one another and and say something as a whole that's a lot richer. But I don't think that travel media really wants to do that because everything is so you know, congested into a list of, you know, the 10 best this or how to travel through a city in 36 hours, mm-hmm. um, which is just impossible. I mean, I've lived here, I moved here 10 years ago. I'd say it took me like four or five years of living here to really feel like, okay, I, I like, I get this place. I understand that like feeling in the air that a city has. It's kind of like intangible, but once you get it, you get it. And, and even now after 10 years and as someone who like I read and I study and I consult with historians and anthropologists, and I like really put myself out there to kind of try to experience different communities. There's like so many things that I don't know. And I think that the great thing about cities is that, you know, the great cities are kind of ones that are not not like 100% discoverable. I mean, there's like, there's, there's always something new so I, I think that like we have to sort of deconstruct the goals of of travel media and travel travel journalism, and kind of rebuild our conception of like how to tell the story of another place, and what kind of stories kind of help do that. Because the problem with the simple story is that when you tell the same thing over and over and over and over again, whether it's true or not, it becomes harder and harder to imagine that a, that a different story actually exists. And so I think that, you know, what I see with travel media is like one person came and they wrote this list of 10 restaurants. And then the next person who came read that article, I was like, okay, these are the 10 places I need to go to. Maybe they add like one or new, one or two new things. And then the next person comes and just sort of like, they all kind of stack onto one another. 
See, so you've talked about this kind of like, uh, especially when it comes to travel media, um, the, I guess the inherent commercialism in it. And mm-hmm. the thing that I've always yeah. been curious about is that when it comes to journalism, as much as we may disdain those like listicle type of stories, that is what consumers click on and like pay for. So in essence, you know, yeah. whether it's like travel writing or just food journalism in general, content is shifted because of that commercialism that you talked about is shifted toward what people click on. So for you, that's like straddling multiple worlds, but especially as a writer, um, how do you balance like doing what you want to do versus what, you know, like a publication may want to see done versus what you know, like in the food business is something that people read about because you want to tell true stories, but there's always that element of. I don't know, like that commercialism element that you know people are going to read this story that doesn't really say much or this list that doesn't say much. Like, how are you able to do what you want to do with that hanging over your head? I've been really surprised, you know, like, so I I first started cooking and then I started writing and then I started the travel company. And it was really interesting to, it's interesting to work one-on-one with travelers Mm. who are reading these listicles and reading these guides And so they come to me with this list of, oh, I need to go see this monument, or I need to go to this museum, I need to dine at this restaurant. And everyone comes with the same list, and everyone has the same exact experience. And so you have these spaces that kind of stop, their essence becomes a a space for tourists. But as I've worked more and more with travelers, what I've learned is that a lot of travel media underestimates the curiosity of travelers Mm. and the motivations behind travel. Travelers are more open to learning the story that's there rather than coming and saying, I want the story I read to be fulfilled, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. So like with that in mind, I think when I first started writing, I was really kind of trying to fit into fulfilling like what editors were asking me for. And now because I cook and because I write and because I have this company and I have multiple sources of income and I'm not depending 100% on, on writing, I can kind of like move myself away from that and be like, you know what, if I don't want to write that. And if I'm going to, I'm going to do it on my own terms and like look for the person who's going to allow me to do that. When I'm like actually writing an article or a list that includes like recommendations of a bunch of different places, my personal process is I pull up Google Maps and I start mapping everything. I'm like, okay, I want to make sure that there's something on the south side, there's something on the north side, there's something in central, there's something, you know, like I want like a wide variety of geography. And I'm also really um, obsessive about who the stories are about. So I want to make sure that there's women who are being represented and there are different ethnicities of people that are being represented and kind of trying to break the larger narratives in in every single space that I can. Um, But I, you know, that's like a really kind of obsessive (laughs) personal process that I have. And I don't know how much that comes across to the reader, but it's certainly like, you know, work that, that I think is valuable to that that style of, of writing to like sort of take that approach to it. 
You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast, and we'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Justin Phillips with Soleho, and we're back with Kevin Vaughn. I think something that, and you've kind of touched on this a little bit too, I, I think that something that people forget is as a journalist of any kind, you're going to also go on your own journey developing as a person. Like if you're covering a specific area, a specific beat, you're going to, you know, be enlightened by topics that you read, people that you meet, interviews that you conduct. So it's always like a fluid kind of growth for all of us. And you especially, as you've built your expertise about South America, about Argentina, um, what and the conversations that you've had and the stories that you've put together, what have you, what has it kind of shown you about yourself? Like your place in all of this, um, your place in writing, in the food world. Uh, what have you learned about yourself? Like what kind of journey have you been on these last couple of years? I'd say like two years ago, my writing really started to shift where I was really asking myself, um, what is the impact of this story? Am I Am I leaving an impact that is positive or, or, or am I contributing to um, structures, um, power structures or uh, structures of privilege that, that I benefit from, although I don't agree with them? And so especially with Matambre was kind of like something that was birthed from the pandemic of not really having, you know, a cook who has a tour company, obviously all of my income disappeared in a day and just having like a lot of time to really self-reflect and sit down and look at my body of work and see what I was developing and where I wanted to push it. And so with Matambre, I, I look at it as like trying to put different work out into the world that challenges this narrative that we're talking about. But it's also a, a very self-reflective space of me looking at my role as, as a you know white cisgendered male from the US and all of the privileges that come with that. And so with everything that I'm looking, everything I'm writing, I'm I kind of like ask myself two questions. One that I you know already said, which is like what what structures and what systems is this piece of writing contributing to. And secondly, I'm because of my role, and I think that the, the power that I have because of the person that I am, and the power that writers in general have because we have the power to edit stories um, and tell stories the way we want to tell them, I'm constantly asking myself, like, am I taking up space? Am I demanding space? Or am I being invited into this space? Um, to share a story. And so, you know, for me, like Matamade, the idea was always to do, to have a really big focus on interviews, to allow people to tell their stories and to kind of like treat myself more as a microphone than a typewriter um, and like let these people tell me what they want. And so when, I, when I'm researching and when I'm looking for people, it's never like, um, you know, I've talked about, you know, uh, um, like women's rights and feminism and labor rights and racism and transculturalism and all these different issues that that I can understand theoretically, but I 
can never understand them um, on an emotional level because I'm, I'm never going to live them. You know, the fanzine that you guys read with Jorgelina Mandarina, for example, I was writing to her and I asked, like, can we do this interview? Because she had moved recently back to her home state and she's sort of going through this investigation around, like, native foods and native ingredients that have been kind of lost. And that conversation launched into something completely different about her Paraguayan background and, and this kind of, like, internal wrestling between what it means to be Argentine, what it means to be Paraguayan, where those cross over with one another. I would have never written to her and been like, hey, uh, you're Paraguayan, I know that. Can you talk to me about racism? Like, can you explain that reality to me? Like, so I'm, I'm really, really careful about making sure that someone wants to tell me something and not use myself uh, and my power to tell that story for them. I would love to hear more about Matambre then, um, since we're kind of on mm -hmm. the topic anyway of, you know, I think it's, you know, certainly I empathize a lot with your position, with all of your critiques of food media and travel media and just media in general and how it covers places and people that we love and cherish. Um, and I also empathize with your making of just a new property, just as the place, like the bucket for all these stories that seem to get sidelined in like mainstream coverage. So I'd just love to hear more about like what, what you're proud of with Matambre, with that project, uh, what you feel like you and your collaborators, your interviewees have achieved in complicating these narratives. Yeah. I mean, I think the pretty much every interviewee that I've sat down with has told me that first of all, like no one has ever asked them questions like this. No one's ever asked them those kinds of questions on their terms. And so I'm just sort of seeing these people responding in a way and, and reading, becoming active readers and starting to form relationships with one another because they see each other in the magazine and they're seeing that they're not alone in these journeys to be more sustainable or to change the way workers are treated or or, or what have you. The other thing that I'm, that I'm working on that I've just started um, last week was our first event is every month 10% of the subscriptions goes to, uh, the original idea was to like send it to a different charity, a local charity every month. And when I was talking with Gloria Del Fogon, who was the subject of the first fanzine, she told me about this project that she was working on coincidentally with the baker that I work with for my pop-up. And they were trying to figure out how to do, the term in Spanish is cocina solidaria, so like a solidar solidary kitchen, um, where they wanted to go out and form relationships with people who were living on the street, who are really dehumanized. There's a lot of problems that have been exasperated by the pandemic that already existed around like sort of access to food. And so they were developing this project where they would go out and talk to people living on the street, ask them about their relationship with food and the foods that they missed and what they would like to eat if they had the choice. And that kind of turned into this project that we're working on now that doesn't have a name yet, where we have joined together with this organization called AMAR, A-M-M-A-R. And that is... I guess they call themselves a syndicate for sex workers, um, a lot of which are 
from the trans community and a lot of which are from immigrant trans communities. And we sat down with them and asked um, like what their food reality was. And so we've started a project where every two weeks we are cooking for them based on the foods that we love to cook and based on this interaction that we've built with them and that we're forming with them about the foods they would like to eat. So a lot of them are Peruvian and um, I bonded with them immediately because I make Mexican food and one of the partners in this project makes Venezuelan food and so there's a lot of connections between those three cuisines. And that's something that happened really organically, it happened really naturally and we're receiving donations from readers and we're receiving donations from people that I've interviewed who are giving money or who have volunteered to give us a hand cooking um, or donating things to cook with. And that's something, yeah, like I said, it just started and it wasn't this dimension that I expected Matambre to take at all. The irony of that is that Matambre in Spanish means kill hunger. It's a cut of beef and, and now it's like sort of very organically turned into this project centered around issues related to hunger in, in, in a very real way, not just in writing. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kevin. It was really a delight hearing from you and just hearing you go off on all this, these really great topics. Awesome. <laughs> it's just, I could listen I to you all day. And also, and we can't, we can't wait to see what you have next, by the way. It's been a, it's been really great. Keep thank up the great you. work. I appreciate it. For listeners who want to find your work, um, could you just give us a quick rundown of where they can find you and if they want to subscribe, like where they can do yeah, that? Yeah, so I have a website, uh, IamKevinVaughn.com. And then on that website, there is a tab for Matambre Mag and you can sign up. Uh, it's a weekly interview. And at the end of the month, a fanzine that's centered around a single theme or it's on a scale. so two to five dollars a month and that helps me put this work together awesome well thank you so much again um thank you guys so much thanks so much yeah have a good day (laughs) have a great day so that's all we have for today's episode we hope you enjoyed it thanks again to kevin vaughn for being in conversation with us and remember to give us a rating on apple podcasts and write in any comments or suggestions of what you'd like to hear in season two we're looking forward to bringing you new episodes on january 25th stay safe be well happy holidays and thank you for listening